towing past 7 o'clock and got a big one on tap once again. You know the music, you know what time it is. It's time for Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, here to go as well. Ira, not in studio again. I like it so much better when you're here, but I can deal with you on the phone, and there's a good reason why you're not here, Ira, because you had a really, really busy Sunday and a busy week in general. Yeah, I mean, this is now the second time I've done it this year where I've seen two NFL football games in the same day. And it's difficult to do. It was easier when I was in Los Angeles and saw at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum and then uh, driving from there to Carson, which is 10 minutes. This was more difficult going from Pittsburgh to Baltimore. And I saw four of the top teams in the AFC. So it was a very exciting day and two major games. Major games indeed. Ira, we're going to talk plenty of football later, but don't you love this part of the football season where you're finally starting to sort out the contenders from the pretenders? After four weeks, it's really hard to tell. But now we're halfway through the season and you're beginning to see all these pieces shape up and we'll get to hear from you later about how you think that you know these actual playoff runs are going to shape up well what's exciting about the nfl is we're going to talk about college football is that you have we're getting the elimination games in college football like florida was eliminated from the playoff consideration for losing to georgia but you're getting that in the pro football also if the steelers lose to the dolphins they're out if the steelers lose to the colts they're out there is a situation where you have a lot of teams now that have those four, they're four and four, the three and five, where they are playing for their playoff lives. And on the other hand, you have teams that are playing for the, for the, the bye, the number one seed. So it's very exciting because you have the Ravens playing for that number one seed. And then you have also the teams that are just saying, well, if we win or if we lose, we're done. So that's what I'd like. The NFL season is, is, is breaking really nicely to have some very cool matchups. I, I think you're absolutely right. The way it, it's broken out has been pretty perfect as far as uh, being a spectator has gone. So uh, the rest of this season we do have to look forward to. It's just going to get better from here. Uh, speaking of getting better from here, Ira, our show tonight, 745, got an excellent author coming on. His name is Michael Sokolov. Would you like to tell us about him? Yes, he's a, from the New York Magazine. He wrote The Last Temptation of Rick Pitino, the story of corruption and scandal and big business of college basketball. And considering the NCAA has now uh, looked at the idea of paying, or not of paying, but allowing players to profit on their likeness, uh, he just, his book just came out in terms of the whole Adidas scandal and the whole basketball scandal they had with Louisville. Uh, I think he's an excellent guest to give us a, an idea about where, where we're going from here and what's going to happen and what the landscape in three years is going to look at. And are we going to have college athletics and not have it? And also talk about what went on in, with Louisville. I mean, they've had this entire scandal and assistant coaches have lost their jobs, but the only head coach to lose their jobs because of this, lose their job, has been Rick Pitino. So it'll be very interesting. To, he wrote a great book. I read it. It's tremendous. And I, I'm excited to have him on the show. Ira, big congratulations. Go out to the Washington Nationals. They are your new World Series champions. They're our neighbors, too. And we've talked about how it's so great to uh, have spring training just literally two blocks from the station. And that's where the Astros and the Nationals play. So we got an inter-West Palm uh, championship game. And congratulations to the Nats. They did pull this one out. You attended all of the games in Washington. What was, you know, the, the feeling in Washington after, uh, after Game 7 was uh, all said and done? Oh, well, I, was, I watched both Game 6 and 7 down in, uh, in, 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 at the ballpark. And Game 6 was, they were down 3-2, went to a bar. It was exciting, but the bar was maybe half-filled. Uh, I, went by, I went down around 6 o'clock with my girlfriend at the same time. 
for the for Game Seven, and we're at Buffalo Wild Wings. I couldn't even get into uh, the bars that are closest to the stadium. It was packed. The whole area was going crazy. They have this outdoor bar called the Bullpen that you saw on TV. That was like right across the street from Buffalo Wild Wings. Um, the town was going nuts, and that area especially. I have it was it was exciting watching the game in that in the time, and there were people, of course, in, it was raining that night, so there were people. There were still tens of thousands of fans in the stadium watching the game, sitting in rain, watching it on on the screen there. But it was it was real exciting. I mean, I mean, there was no you didn't hear about people turning over cars and riots and violence or anything like that, which is great. Um, but as I said before, the Nationals are a very popular team in town. Uh, I, it brings apart everybody in terms of all nationalities and races and religions and, and political differences. It's a team. It's a team that really the city has rallied around, and it's a, they played hard. And, and, and their slogan was "Finish the fight." finish the fight and then after they won they go fight finished and they, and i think the fact that they kept coming back i mean on may 23rd the nats were given a one they were record was 19 and 31 they were given a one percent chance to to make the playoffs and they and they rallied back in the playoffs even three one in the eighth inning against the brewers against hater who was one of the best relievers in baseball they were down two one to the dodgers came back and, and won uh, won a game five in dodger stadium uh they rallied from 2-1 to 6 inning deficits the Astros in Game 6. I mean, they, they beat the Astros at home, a team that was 60-21 and 21 at home, one of the best home records of all time. So just a tremendous, it, it, just a feeling. I mean, I was at a bar, a restaurant called Cafe Milano, and the team was there, and people were just, they, every time a player walked in, people were clapping and they walked out. Uh, just the sense of joy for the town. It's a, very, it's a town that everyone sort of, the players were great. They were fun. The whole baby shark, the, the enthusiasm <laughs> of the team. It was, it was good. It's really, it's a, and then you saw in the parade. It is, this, this was a very, some teams win and the town likes them, but they're not. This team is a very popular team and, and, and the players are popular and they're fun and the players embraced it. They really embraced being part of this town and and and, and working and, and winning this in Washington. You know, so to add to some of the stats that you threw out already, Ira, they were five and zero in elimination games. That's not something easy to do. So they, they obviously, when it came down to it, the Nationals were ready to go. Um, so let's go back to Game Six. And you know, I'm looking at this, Ira. Steven Strasburg needed to pitch the game of his life, and pretty much he did. Well, I think he pitched the game of his life, and that's why he just opted out. And people are thinking he's going to have the highest contract in the history of, of pitchers. Uh, but uh, Verlander was 0 for 6 in the World Series. He's 5 6 8 ERA and seven series starts, and he had already lost game two. So there was a lot of pressure on him. And, and we talked about it on the last show. It's like you've got to get to Verlander early. You're, you're, if, he, if he has trouble in the first inning, then that would make a difference. And, and, he, and they both, but actually, Strasburg and Verlander both had difficulty. I mean, in, in the first. Uh, they, uh, the, 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 the Nationals got a run based upon they finally used roof replay and replay came into play and uh, they were able to uh, they, they, they infield hit was rolled out but then they, they ruled Turner was was on base they jumped out to one nothing but I think the key inning was that there's a couple key innings that game the, the bottom of the first um, Springer doubled off Strasburg then Altobi uh, moved him over with a sacrifice fly but then Bregman comes in with a home run and makes it two one. And then Gurriel, I mean, so suddenly they're down 2-1, and, and, and Strasburg's now in trouble. It, it's a disaster. And then Gurriel comes up, and he had, you remember that hit? I mean, it was like dead center. I mean, you couldn't imagine it could be any further, and it was caught in dead center field. 
by Robles. And, and I thought, wow, I mean, that could have been 3-1 Strasbourg and Palms. But the fact that they were able to keep it to, to just 2-1 was key because then Verlander and Strasbourg, the rest of the game were sort of you know, going 1-2-3, one, 1-2-3. Two, three, one, two, three. On the top of the third, Rendon had a 10-pitch at bat. And I think that was key. It got it sort of eating and it, it ate up. But we talked about how the Astros didn't want to go to the bullpen. There's problems with some of their bullpens. But to get Verlander out of the game early, which is what happened, Strasbourg pitched in the ninth inning. Verlander was gone by the sixth inning. Uh, but then in the, in the top of the fifth, Eaton hits a home run. Soto hits a home run off, Ver, off Verlander. And, uh, and then uh, – um, uh, but then what happened was is that they just – the Astros, with the problem they've been having the entire playoffs was they had men in scoring position, and they just couldn't score. Altuve struck out. Brantley grounded out. And that was, but the key inning was top of seventh because they're and, – and I think the announcers and people talk about the game – Look about it. I thought we're looking at it wrong. They, if you remember what happened is uh, Turner got a hit, but he was ruled out on batter's interference because he was running to first base and the ball was behind him. And, and there's debate for a whole day about should he been out, should he not been out. But remember, they, they had brought in uh, Will Harris. So during this entire, it was a 10-minute review whether the guy should be out or not. And the Astros reliever, Harris, is standing on the mound, just standing. He threw some pitches, didn't throw pitches. He comes back after that. There's a man on first. Remember that. Rendon is there. First pitch, home run, 5-2, Nats, game over. And that was, I think, a key moment. I mean, everyone's talking about, oh, boy, the, uh, the Nationals got a bad break because it could have been men on second and third and no out. It said they had men on first and one out. But I think Harris being on the mound, standing there, just doing nothing. It's not what pitchers are used to doing, just waiting for 10 minutes. And, and Rendon hit the next pitch as a home run. And, and that really set the stage and didn't really have the Astros had a chance to come back because Strasburg was uh, you know, going up the rest of the game. And I thought it was interesting in game six, they left Strasbourg pitch into the ninth inning. And in 2015, I was at the game five of the World Series when the Mets were down 3-1. Matt Harvey, if you remember, pitched one of the best games of all time. Mm-hmm. Going in, he pitched eight shutouts inning, had a two-run lead going in the ninth. They were going to take him out. He told Terry Collins, the manager, let me in, let me in. He came out, blew the lead, blew the World Series. Terry Collins was fired. Harvey's never been the same pitcher since. The Royals win the World Series. But in this case, they let Strasburg come out for one inning, for one pit, one hitter, but then they took him out. But they ended up you know, easily winning the game 7-2. But I think the game turned on, on the fact that they were able to get Verlander out of the game and, uh, and, and just Strasburg pitched great. And, and Strasburg was able in that, early, that first inning to keep it a 2-1 game and not you know, make it worse, three or four or five runs. It's 7-16. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. At 7:45, author of The Last Temptation of Rick Pitino, Mike Sokolov, joins us here on Iron Sports. Um, okay, so going into Game 7, uh, you know, I always look at, at Vegas, and Vegas has Steven Strasburg at plus 1,200 to win the, uh, M- win the MVP. So I'm saying to myself, this has to mean that Houston's going to win this game because Strasburg should be the MVP if they win, barring Scherzer pitching, you know, a shutout or something like that. Strasburg's two wins were on his back. So I just thought it was too good to be true, and I'm thinking to myself, darn, Vegas knows that uh, Houston's going to win this one. It was a great game, Ira, but that was not the case. No, I mean, it, it, what happened was is that the Nats, of course, win 6-2, Scherzer, Greinke. And Greinke from, for the Astros pitched phenomenal. I mean, the criticism of Greinke is he's not a big game pitcher. The pressure's going to get to him. But he's actually, he pitched the perf- almost perfect for six innings. And it was Scherzer that was 
disaster. I mean, the the he was men were on base every single inning. And and again, we're we're getting to the beginning of the game. I mean, if you go to these World Series games and say I'm going to catch it in the fifth or sixth inning, you're missing the game because the games were in the beginning. In the bottom of the sixth inning and the bottom of the second inning, Gurriel hit a home run off Scherzer, and then they had men on first and second, and Chiros pops up. And then Springer hit a ball to left field, and I swear that was going to be a double. It's going to be 3-0. This World Series game is going to be like it was Game 7 a couple years ago when the Astros blew out the Dodgers 5-1. But, uh, but instead, uh, Soto catches it right on like a, like a lollipop, almost an ice cream cone catch. And, uh, uh, and so that, it held it to one nothing. But then the rest of that, from the third, the fourth, as much as Greggy's getting one, two, three, uh, Scherzer is just surviving. Like in the bottom of the third, Altuve got hit, Bregman walked, but then Al- Alvarez had a long, long drive out. Bottom of the fourth, Reddick was on. Reddick and Springer were, were both on. Altuve, who was two for 14 with runners and scoring pitching, he fly, flew out. The bottom of the fifth, same thing. They had that on first and third, and Scherzer struck out. It was like Scherzer was just getting out of problems, after problems and, and not giving up anything and uh and then then the then then it all came apart finally he was able to keep him in the game and in the seventh inning uh rendon hits a home run off Granky, and then he walks soto so after only pitching he just gave up two hits and a walk after just pitching 80 pitches uh, um the aj hinch takes out Granky, and but he's still leading 2-1 and they put harrison who gave up the home run the night before but they don't bring Derek Colwood, who everybody thought they were going to bring in. Like, you have the best pitcher in baseball right there sitting there, but you don't bring him in. You bring, you bring uh, 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 Harrison. What does Harris do? Home run to Howie Kendrick, uh, who had the grand slam against the Dodgers, 3-2 Nats. And, uh, and then it was, that, that was the end of the game. That was where they won. And then the smart thing with the Nats did is they brought Corbin in. And Corbin, who has been – Maligned a little with his ERA and everything, he pitched three, uh, three scoreless innings, uh, and it, it was able to to win the game for for the Nats. So, and then they kept adding runs. I mean, none of these games going to the ninth inning were ever one of those things where it was close. It was literally the teams took the lead and then stayed. That's what happened in the three games in Washington and the four games in Houston, where the and, and of course for the first time ever, all the road the road teams won every single game. But the key really was, I mean, the decision from AJ Hinch to take out. Granke, where I would have left Granke in. I mean, he just all he did was yeah. give a home run to their best hitter, Rendon. He walked Soto, and it was a close call. People said, "Wow, it could have gone either way." But then to take him out and bring Harrison, who had just given up that home run the night before, I wouldn't have done that. Ira, any more uh, takeaways here from Washington? I know you uh, had a great time celebrating with all these fans. <laughs> well, I would say that for a team that. Uh, I think that for the team that, remember, they, they won a title in 1924. People like, we haven't won a title since 1924. I'm like, well, who was around in 1924 <laughs> to win that title? But they've been back since 2005. And they've had good teams. But to this, when you win, when you didn't expect you're going to win, like, I think it's different. I think if the Yankees would have won, the Dodgers would have won, it'd be like, we've been in it. But for Washington to to actually come out from the wild card and be down like this, I thought it was, it was just a tremendous uh, – it, it, it was something that was this comeback, and I love the term "finish the fight" and uh, and then and fight finished, and and that was what the the theme was, what they were doing. But it was exciting when they won to to see to be down there. I've never seen so many people clear out a bar. Like everyone's at Buffalo Wild Wings, and the moment the game ended, they all rushed out. Like did people sleep out on their bills? Did anyone pay? I mean, it was they were all in the streets, and and it was fun. And then they had the newspapers with the headlines. Uh, but I, I love that. I thought it was it was great. And uh, but then but things changed. Strasburg's opted out 
uh, of his contract. People don't really know if he's going to go to Sydney or back. Ryan Zimmerman and Ryan and Gomes, Yanni Gomes, their options were not taken back, so they might be gone. Rendon's a free agent. So this team is an older team. The question is, can the Nats, how much of the players they can bring back? But it was exciting that, to note that um, the first pitch – uh, Scherzer pitched uh, was a, I don't I don't know who hit the home run, but Scherzer gave a home run. It was the first spring training game in February, sometime between the Astros and the Nats, and they'll probably play the, one of the first uh, spring trainings again. And I, I think if anyone has a chance to go to the ballpark at the Palm Beaches, look at that facility. It was built in 2017. It's totally state of the art. There's seven or eight baseball fields, computer simulations, everything. You got to think that 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 facility has helped these two teams. The fact that they train in these facilities, that they're players, they're minor leaguers everyone there i think it's something to say that the the fact that it's a state-of-the-art baseball facility and the two teams that play in that have made the world series you have to give some credit to the facility absolutely you do 722 i run sports true oldies channel i'm mike balsamo i wrestle wake up on saturday morning and i'm perusing the schedule for college football games there really wasn't much out there was there no i mean it was weird if alabama LSU off, Ohio State, Penn State, and Clemson was playing Wofford. So it was one of those slow days. And there's only five, there was only five weekends left in football. So it was weird that it was a day that teams have bye weeks and the teams that, like Clemson, that were playing was an easy schedule. But there were some really good games. So as much as this week was a, sort of an off or down week getting ready, I, thought, I still thought that was, I watched some good football games this Saturday. Well, let's start it off with um, Baylor because this was one that uh, was probably a little closer than Baylor wanted it to be. Well, Baylor was a 17.5-point favorite. It was Thursday night, and I think this was a great way for Baylor to go on the national stage. Remember, two years ago, they've only won one game. Matt Rule, who you'll hear his name for every job that's open. I'm telling you, every NFL job. He was, he was a finalist for the Jets the last time, the Jets. But Matt Rule is going to be on every short list for every team that is looking for a coach. And the job he did at Baylor, this turnaround is remarkable. Uh, but, but, look, this game was a lot closer than Baylor thought. Their defense played great. Uh, but West Virginia had a chance to tie at the end of the game. They actually kicked the field goal to tie. But then they tried it again. They were, it was, it was a delay of game. They tried it again, and it was blocked. But Charlie Brewer, great quarter game for Baylor, 270 yards passing, two touchdowns. Look, Baylor's undefeated. They, they, have, they, have a, they have still have Oklahoma to play. They still have Texas to play. But on the national stage, people got to see what Baylor's all about. And, it, look, they run the table. They're gonna, I think they're going to the national championship picture. I don't think they're going to run the table, but they still have, they have everything if they, if they can win the rest of their games. So, Ira, the game I was super excited about was one right here with our uh, kind of hometown Florida Gators taking on Georgia. It was easily the game of the weekend. And you know what? It, it ended up being a very good game to watch. It was exciting because Georgia came in was one. It was three and a half, four or five around that point. But Florida played hard. And Florida, this is, I, I mean, Florida has been playing the game against LSU. This is now their second loss. They're eliminated from the playoff competition because Georgia now is going to win the SEC East. But Georgia was dominating the whole game. But it's that they, all they were doing was kicking field goals. That's why they're up 13-3 at halftime. And, uh, and they first half they ran 41 plays. Florida ran 20. They, they controlled the time of possession. And then they started the second half with another field goal of 16-3. But every time that then Florida came down and got those two touchdowns, uh, and it was like they were all – Florida was still in the game and still trying. But Florida answered – you know, it was, it was one of those things where Florida I, – I, the fight that Florida showed – and they're a very young team, and Dan Mullen's done a tremendous job with this program. But I, I think, look, Florida lost this game, 
But I think that this is really building for something. When you look at where Miami is, where Florida State is, I think we were Florida right now. You're comfortable that next year could be the year. But it was look, they wanted to win the game. They were in the game, but uh, but hanging on, they had and it was great. Georgia, at the end of the game, they had to convert. They had a third and like a third and seven, and from threw a 22 yard pass to get that first down. And Florida was out of timeout, so they were able to run out the game. But so it was a 24-17 score. Probably you know, Georgia dominated, but Florida still looked great. Let's move on to the next one: Oregon versus USC, and. I, you know, there's a lot of pundits saying today after this weekend that Justin Herbert's going to be the first uh, quarterback taken off the board above Tua, above Jake Fromm, who you just mentioned. I don't know if that if I go that far, but still, this is a really nice win for Oregon. Well, they were down ten nothing, so they're down ten nothing at USC. And remember, USC had already beaten U- Utah, uh, the other uh, top Pac-12 team. But Oregon ran out. Now I'm listening to this game on the radio. But Oregon just like touchdown after touchdown. Herbert. Threw three touchdowns, but he had an early interception. Juwan, his star wide receiver became Juwan Johnson, who last two years ago was Penn State star wide receiver, who transferred to Oregon in seven catches, 106 yards. And then the story of the game is really the fact that Oregon won. Uh, they were only a four and a half point favorite, and they won by 32 points. But the fact that USC, everyone's talking about, this is Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer's coming there. I mean, it's just so much noise about Urban Meyer coming to USC. Uh, they just hired USC hired a new athletic director, replacing Lynn Swan, and he was asked about Urban Meyer, and, and he can actually comment about Urban Meyer because, to some extent, uh, well, he already has a coach. But the fact is, Urban's not coaching anywhere. I don't think Urban should take this job. I don't think USC is that great a job. Their facilities aren't that great. Um, but I, I, he. He's not denying it. Maybe he just likes the fact that his name's in the in the news for that. But Chip Helton is struggling there uh, at USC, and clearly the, the uh, school wants him. I mean, the fan base wants him out. And 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 I have a lot of friends who are USC fans, and they're not upset that they got blown out. They want it clear that they want Helton gone, and they want Urban Meyer. <laughs> Let's keep it on the West Coast. Uh, you brought up Utah earlier, and uh, Utah did get a nice win against Washington. If you get a chance to watch Utah play, Tyler Huntry, Huntley, their quarterback, is great. Zach Moss, the running back, is NFL running back. And uh, it was a close game. I mean, winning at Washington is hard. Washington's had a down year. But Utah, is, they won 33-28. They were down 21-13 in the game and, and were able to come back and, and with a big interception and, and, and get back into the game. But it's now sets up for the Pac-12. It was a great show showcase for the Pac-12. But the other teams weren't playing. They were on TV. People could watch them. And now if Utah and actually Utah and Oregon both need each other to keep winning because then they could play in the Pac-12 championship game and look good when they beat each other, one beats the other. But the fact that each team has one loss, uh, this is what the Pac-12 wanted. They needed two clear-cut teams to come and meet, go meet in the Pac-12 championship game. Ira, let's talk about Auburn because I would think that Auburn has to be a little disappointed with this result. Nobody expected, uh, nobody expected this game to be as close as it was. Ole Miss plays hard. I, I, I watched that game, too. And uh, I'm excited if I'm an Auburn fan. Bo Nix, their quarterback, was 20 for 44, 340 yards. He's looking good. Like, he's looking like someone who might – it's, it's off and on. But uh, this – look, they ended up winning the game. They had – they dominated. They had 500 yards to Mississippi's 250. Um, Auburn settled for five field goals in the game. They could have blown this game totally out. I mean, Mississippi's three and six. They're having a down year, of course. But they missed three of the field goals. And then even at the end of the game, Auburn, they settled. Can you, the guy – their kicker had missed two field goals already. They are – it's like fourth and uh, a yard. Instead of going for like going for it with a minute 14 to go, Mississippi having no timeouts left, they try they try a risky 49-yard field goal 
and they miss it. And then Mississippi moved the ball down and uh, and turned it over on an interception. But but they almost had a chance. I, I would have tried. I mean, just seeing how Auburn was dominating on the offensive line and just moving at will, I have no idea why they settled for a kicker that already missed two field goals. And his longest in his career was 48 on a 49-yard field goal. And I see teams do this. They risk getting it blocked. When you're watching the NFL games, how many kicks did you see miss? Oh, oh and these are pro kickers that pay, get paid millions of dollars. I would not have... Uh, had my kicker go out with a 49-yard field goal and try to kick that. So, Ira, you obviously have been away from South Florida for a little bit. Everyone here, you know, everyone in Miami has been billing this up like this was their Super Bowl this weekend. They had to have a good showing against a down FSU team. They did, and it cost Willie Taggart his job. Well, Miami set an all-time record nine sacks. Uh, Greg Rousseau had four sacks for Miami. Uh, 27-10 win. I mean, the both teams are five and four and four going to game, uh, but just a, a dominating win and, and a win that Miami want to have. And to think that the day next day Willie Taggart gets fired. I mean, he's only in the middle of his second year. He's nine and twelve, six and nine in ACC games, but he's been zero and five against Miami, Florida, and Clemson. Most importantly, they're getting no attendance at, at the stadium. I mean, they're getting thirty, forty thousand to watch games. Uh, What's shocking is that they have to pay him $17 million. I mean, Crazy. you're wondering how a coach that was 5-7 and seven last year as the first losing season since 1976, but he really had a – he was 16-20 at Western Kentucky, 24-25 and 25 at South Florida, and then he was at Oregon for one year at 7-5. and five. Why Florida State felt the need to pay him so much money? Now they're paying – not only that, they're paying a $17 million buyout to Willie Taggart. Then they have to pay another coach. They're going to have to pay a minimum of 5 to $7 million. A year, so it's it just shows you what it is. But it was, I mean, Florida State is—they're just not going to tolerate this. But it was unfortunately they should have never signed Tagger to that contract. Do you think they're able to bring in another big name coach, Ira? I mean, it's getting this team gets further and further away from the Bobby Bowden days every day. Well, they had Jimbo Fisher, and they pushed him out to some extent. And Fisher, they, they didn't appreciate that. You start seeing these programs that they don't appreciate what they have. Yeah. They try to get even someone better. And they really did not give. It was a battle between Fisher and the AD. And so he left and went to, went to Texas A&M. But, I, look, they have to they – have to, it's, it's tough because they're not getting Aaron Meyer to Florida State. And they might not, they're, not, they're not getting those big names. That's why they hired Willie Taggart in the first place, to coach at Oregon. And he was kind of 24 and 25 at South Florida. So I don't know what they're – this is a tough, a really tough hire for them. Um, the move might have been made now because they might have someone in mind. Sometimes you make a move at this time because you really are trying to work on bringing in, want to make that announcement and get that coach that they really want once the season ends. So there, there might be something that they know. I mean, uh, that they have, but they, this is they cannot, they cannot afford to make another mistake because now with Florida ascending and what and what's happening now in with Diaz in Miami, uh, Florida State cannot become the third school in the state. And when you look at what Central Florida is doing, and uh, it's it's tough. I mean, Florida State is in a distance. This is a major crucial hire for the program. It's funny, yeah. I was going to say they're they're fourth after UCF and uh, you know the prominence they've come to in the past half a decade or so. Um, Iris, so tell us a little bit about you know uh, the bowl games that we have left and how you think this is going to shake out. Well, I mean, the one other interesting thing I'll quickly state is that there's the, the team. There's one team that goes to the Cotton Bowl this year from the they call it the Group of Five, which is the, the the five not major conferences like the American, where Cincinnati, uh, the Mountain West Conference USA, the MAC, and the Sun Belt. They actually are Division One programs. 
But if you look at the bottom of the 25, there's like six schools. So they're all battling for that one spot because that's the thing. So when you look, when they, when you look at the rankings, you're like, oh, look at all these teams. Because a lot of the big power five conferences have, have three, four losses. And a lot of these group of five schools have one loss. And they're all one of the best. So there's a battle if you're a, an alumnus of Cincinnati or Memphis or SMU. You had a big win because you're happy because Memphis beat SMU this, this weekend. But Boise State, San Diego State, but FAU and Central Florida are in that mix. Not this year, but they have been in those groups. So it's, it's interesting to follow that at the bottom of the top 25. But the key thing is that with Florida Eliminate, there's 11 teams left. Um, and we've gone over the ones, LSU and Bama, uh, and the loser of that game, it looks like it's still going to get into the playoff. It, people keep talking now, if Alabama loses because they're at home, uh, that's this coming week. Maybe they might not get in the playoffs if they, that happens. Then Ohio State plays Penn State. And the problem with it is they're both, they don't get to play in the conference championship game. They're like, well, why not if those are the two best teams because they're in the same division. LSU and Bama are in the same, in the same division in the West and Ohio State and Penn State are in the Eastern division, however they call it, of the uh, uh, of the Pac-12, of the Big Ten. And then Clemson uh, is, probably, is, of course, in the mix. And then you have Baylor still undefeated, Minnesota still undefeated, and Georgia. What happens if Georgia keeps running the table? They have to, they have to beat Missouri next week, Auburn, Texas A&M. What if they run the table and they're able to go to the uh, – uh, and then beat Alabama or LSU? They see championship game. Oklahoma is looking sort of outside. They have, they're 7-1. and one but with the loss to Kansas State. And then you have Oregon and Utah. So, as I said, 11 teams. But next week we're going to see Minnesota could get eliminated. Penn State is a seven-point favorite at Minnesota, but Minnesota's tough. This is going to be a huge game for them. You have the LSU-Bama game. Missouri's at Georgia. Uh, Georgia's favored by 14.5, but Missouri has, is a very good, dangerous team there. And uh, Iowa State could knock Oklahoma out. Oklahoma State's a 13.5 favorite. And then at the final game of the night is Clemson and NC State. Clemson's favored by 32. So, it's exciting because I said we talked about elimination games, and for some of these teams, that's what it, that's what it is, and it, it, it's great down to this final eleven. It's seven thirty-five. You're listening to Iron Sports on the True Oldies Channel. Just about ten minutes to go until we have author of the Last Temptation of Rick Pitino. It's Michael Sokolov joins us here on the True Oldies Channel. Ira, let's talk NFL action. It was an amazing Sunday, but let's go back to last Monday night because this was Steelers versus Dolphins, and you were there. Oh, I mean. First of all, there was no enthusiasm in Pittsburgh because the Pittsburgh fans don't turn out to Thursday night games or Monday night games, and they were booing the Steelers. I mean, they're down 14 nothing. They're ready to go down 21 nothing. And if it's not for that DeAndre Johnson touchdown that made it 14-10, was 14-3 at the end of the uh, first half, I mean, if, could you imagine if the Steelers had lost to Miami and been eliminated? But in the second half, Steelers came back. They played well. Juju Smith-Schuster had his best game of the year, 103 yards and a touchdown. And James Conner rushed for 23 times 145 yards. And Minka Fitzpatrick had another interception for the Steelers. They had two interceptions. But the point is, is that uh, the Steelers, it was a must-win for game for them. They could not have lost this, and, and they pulled it out. But, uh, uh, but it sort of set up for, for, the, for the Colts game this week. It did set up for the Colts game. And Ira, before we talk, you know, about this and going back to the last game, you know, we talked about it on the show when the Steelers uh, acquired Minka Fitzpatrick from the Dolphins for a first round pick. And I thought that was pricey. And you were like, no, this is this is a smart move. He's been the best player in football, uh, best defensive player in football since he's joined the Steelers. So obviously someone had been scouting Minka Fitzpatrick, knew he'd fit that system and was more than willing to give up a first. And obviously looking at, you know, looking at it in retrospect five games later, it was the right choice. Because the Steelers have known, if you anyone follows the Steelers, Troy Palinala, the big plays. They want their safety to come in. From the days of Mel Blunt, 
back in the 70s. I mean, that's what the Steelers' safety position and the corner position have been. Guys have known Mike Wagner was another safety on that team, but they've been looking for their secondary to make great plays. I mean, the play that he made against Fitzpatrick, the interception, Brian Fitzpatrick, the quarterback, and then the plays he made against in the Colts game, the other interception, he's had four interceptions, two forced fumbles, played great coverage. He's just, he's phenomenal. And it's great to have him on the team and exactly what the Steelers have been looking for. And it, it is saving the season. See, you know, the difference between the Steelers and like the Browns is the Steelers, and I give Tomlin credit, they have, this season was on the brink of like falling apart. They lose Ben. Now James Conner is hurt. They're just, they're on their third string quarterback. They're four-string running back, and they're hanging in there, and their defense is just playing well enough to win these games. Okay, so moving on to yesterday's game, if your name's not Adam Vinatieri, you've been cut like three weeks ago. I I can't believe the Colts have let him get on this long, but either way, um, Pittsburgh's walking out of here with a win. I got to go down to the field before the game. It was neat. So I was on the field watching, and Vinatieri... It's like if you're there and you're watching before the game and you're seeing Boswell kick and that's a kick, pitcher kick, he's making everything. He's kicking everywhere from all distances, everything. But Vinatieri, he was missing everything. Like it was all over, not even close misses. And he, it was just, it was terrible. It was exciting to be in the early because the um, Rudolph and some of the Steelers, they were almost playing like pickup football, like backyard football in their shorts. Before they, like I was out there so early that they're out there just in shorts and t-shirts playing, just playing games, playing fun games, warming up. And then they come out later dressed and they're this and it's very more serious. But I thought it was fun before the game. You'd see them like just like drawing plays up on their hands. And it was pretty cool. I, I, I think the Steelers, I like being down there. They were very loose. They were relaxed. And, but I noticed that Ben Terry was missing everything before the game started. It, it, no, he was. And, and um, you know, as the game went on, it was, it proved that they couldn't trust him any longer. He missed one field goal. Granted, they showed on the replay the laces were in on it, but, I mean, it looked like it looked like a, a high school kid trying to make a, an NFL kick. It, it, it was really bad, Ira. So what happened in this game before you had to hop in your car and go to Baltimore? Well, the Colts, again, like the Dolphin game, the Colts were up 10-3. Uh, Jacoby Brissett hurts his ankle, and, 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 and he's out of the game, and Brian Hoyer comes in. Brian Hoyer is backed up. Tom Brady and Ben Rossiberger is now he's the backup for Jacoby Brissett. So he's a, a very good backup. But, and Brissett didn't really that hurt. I mean, he was jumping around the sidelines. He was moving. You're waiting for him to come in the game, but he didn't come back. But then the Colts drove down. They were, I thought they were going to go up to like 17-3. They were down the 20-yard line. They threw an interception to Minka Fitzpatrick, who runs it back for a touchdown. Uh, but that was – and then, of course, the Colts scored again, and Vinceri misses the extra point that he does. But one of the key parts of the game was at, at the end of the half, the game's over. Everybody's rushing to the concession stand, but the, the half is over. But the, but the Colts committed uh, unnecessary roughness penalty. Horrendous penalty. Suddenly, this let the Steelers kick a 51. I mean, this half was over, it was done, but then they gave the Steelers 51 yards, and Boswell made that 51 yard field goal. And as someone who started in fantasy, I was happy about that. But, uh, but in the second half, the Steelers, again, I mean, was, they are a messy team. They do not win pretty right now. They're just trying to survive. I mean, Rudolph got sacked for a safety, it was 2018. And then everybody was fumbling. The Colts fumbled, Sangles, so the Steelers fumbled. Uh, it was, it was, it was, it was, but only until the Rudolph threw to James Washington and they got a field goal to make up 26-24. Colts have the ball. They come three and out. They can't do anything. Then they get the ball again. And you think the game's over. They stopped them on fourth down, but they threw this pass interference penalty down to the 50. And then the Colts, for a team that was like 
uh, looking what Vinatieri was doing. Then they played like the, what the team's been doing, playing for the field goal. But they're playing for a 43-yard good field goal. I think it's a difference between playing that than like a 20-yard field goal. Because they ran three balls three times up the middle, and then Vinatieri completely missed that. It wasn't even close. And the Steelers hang on for a two-point win, um, doing just enough to win. And then I ran, literally, my girlfriend and I, we got in a rickshaw, had it taken to my car, and drove, luckily, no traffic, straight to Baltimore for the Raven game. And Ira, this was uh, this was a good one. And I, I, I won't be one to toot my own horn, but I picked two games this week. I picked uh, Baltimore to beat the Pats, and I picked the Dolphins to beat the Jets. So uh, I, I was on top of this week. This was a great game, though, even though the score wasn't so close. But I know you might have had a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth just from the atmosphere and the fans in Baltimore. Fans are terrible. Raven fans are awful. They they are so they are just. I mean, my girlfriend was wearing Patriots gear. They're yelling, screaming at any Patriots fan. I, as, I just wore a Steeler jacket and, like, a Nats hat. And, I mean, I could not believe I mean, they're just – they're rude. I mean, I, I go to all these events. I've never seen fans like – I mean, I have. Cleveland and Philly. So now I'll be at Cleveland in a couple of weeks, and I'll make an analysis between Cleveland and Baltimore fans. <laughs> but just – they're not fun. Like, they're just – they're miserable. And, but I will say this. November 4, 2018, Steelers won 23-16. I was there. It was Joe Flacco's last game they started. The Ravens fell to 4-5. They now have lost 4-5 to five games. Everyone said, fire Harbaugh, bench Flacco. They didn't fire Harbaugh. They, they benched Flacco. They can then Jackson run it. Since then, they won, they won six out of seven games. They, lost to, they only lost to Casey in overtime. Then they lost to Chargers in the playoffs. And now this year, they're five and two. I mean, six and two. So they have done, I mean, that turnaround, that moment when everyone thought the season's over, Harbaugh's getting fired, whatever, bringing Lamar Jackson in was the key. And, uh, I mean, this was, look, all you have to see is this game. Is, I can't believe the Patriots hung in the game. I mean, they were, the, drive, the Ravens put these drives where they just ate up clock. They made an 11-play, 75-yard drive, and the, then 11-play, 54-yard drive, and then another long drive. I mean, at, point, at one point in the game, they had like 13 minutes, and the Patriots had the ball for like two minutes. It wasn't even close, but they were up 17 nothing. But then the Ravens fumbled on a punt. The, 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 the Patriots are able to come back on a touchdown, and the Ravens fumbled again, and they're just hanging in. And at that point, you almost thought, boy, the Ravens are going to throw this game around. But that Edelman, when Julian Edelman fumbled the ball and, and Humphrey for the Ravens returned it for a touchdown, made it 24-13, that was just the, the big killer. And then for the, for the Patriots. And I mean, I was rooting for the Patriots because I because the Steelers now are still two games behind the Ravens. So I was trying to root. You know, it was, it was weird for a Steeler fan to root for the Patriots, so we had to, of course, over the Ravens. <laughs> but um, but it was. I mean, Patriots were given uh, their defense was averaging seven and a half uh, uh, points a game. They give up thirty. Uh, the Ravens had twenty six first downs, two hundred ten yards uh, rushing. Uh, they come forty minutes to twenty minutes for time of possession. And Lamar Jackson and just Ingram and Jackson is just perfect. They just totally dominated running up the running it was just it was a mess for the Patriots and then at the end of the game they just ran it out I mean they had they had the last two drives the Ravens had was a nine minute drive and an eight minute drive and a nine minute 35 second drive just eating up the clock and winning the game it was just and and every time the Patriots tried they couldn't stop it but look the Patriots last year had bad games they lost to Jacksonville they lost to Tennessee. They lost to Detroit on back-to-back weeks, and they still went back up and won the Super Bowl. So a lot of times what the Patriots are doing is trying different things, seeing what they could do. They know they're going to face Baltimore again and just learning from it. But, I mean, everyone's putting the fork in New England saying they're done, they're finished, their defense is a fraud. I wouldn't say that. I mean, they, it's not like the Patriots go 16-0 and every year. 
No, I, I'd say I'd call someone a fool who said the Patriots are done now that they lost to, you know, the most explosive team in the league so far this season. Um, we're just about a minute or so away from Michael Sokolov joining us here on Ira on Sports. Ira, I hate London games. Because they're usually sloppy messes, and typically one team at least comes out just not prepared, and that's what we got uh, yesterday morning. Oh, Houston and Jacksonville, 26-3. Uh, to 3. Jacksonville was a disaster, and now Minshew, who had two fumbles and two interceptions, Nick Foles is coming off uh, IR, and it looks like he's going to get his job back. I mean, everyone was thinking it was Gardner Minshew with the mustache. There's Zubrit, and, and they're 4-5. They're still in the playoff hunt, but it's a good one for Houston. Uh, they got, finally got the running game going. Carlos Hyde ran for 160 yards, and Watson played great. They, he wasn't getting the offensive line protected him. He wasn't getting sacked all the time. Uh, now he's in the in the hunt for the MVP conversation. But a good win for it was a it was one of those dominating wins. And a lot of these games were down to a field goal here or there. Houston, you know, ran away from it in the fourth quarter. Ira, if it was me, I'm leaving Minshew in there. Just me. We know what Nick Foles is. If Gardner Minshew is going to be the future of your team, which I think he did enough, you know, in these six weeks to prove that he can. I'm leaving Minshew in there. But that's just me. We'll see what they do. I still think it's a 50-50, but uh, I'm pretty sure Foles is going to at least get another crack at this. It's 745 Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. It's time to bring in Michael Sokolov, author of The Last Temptation of Rick Bettino. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here today on Iron Sports. Happy to be with you. Ira, what do you have for Michael? Michael, uh, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Um, what a name of the book, The Last Temptation of Rick Pitino, but sort of timely right now uh, because of the fact that the NCAA has almost threw their hands up and said, wow, we're going to now let players profit on their likeness. We've heard it, it's been – your book talks about everything that goes on, and now the NCAA is sort of saying, well, we saw what's been going on. We're just going to let the <laughs> profit on their likeness. But I guess the question would be generally in terms of – you talk about the influence on the shoes, the Adidas, the Nikes, the Under Armors into college basketball. And maybe talk about a little bit of the show about how they have changed what we look at in, in terms of viewing college basketball. Well, I think it's been an open secret for you know a decade or even two decades that the shoe companies run a lot of stuff about college basketball. You know, they're in charge um, to an extent, along with the coaches, the very high-paid coaches, and they have a lot of power. So the scandal that the University of Louisville got caught up in and Kansas and, and several other schools and several other coaches was really the shoe companies uh, getting caught in spreading their considerable money around to really direct certain players to certain schools. Uh, and then there were all these middlemen involved uh, to do all kinds of other nefarious stuff with the shoe company money. So the one thing about your book, you focus, of course, on Louisville and Rick Pitino. Talk about, in terms of when Tom Juritz, the athletic director, comes to Louisville in 2000 and, 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 and what he did in terms of changing the school and, and what sport, what role sports, because it's not, you, you focus on Louisville a lot, but it goes on everywhere and there's good and bad. And it's not just, you said athletics became the front porch of the school and the fact that he turned it from a commuter school into a, a school that was, had national reputation based upon the, the sports programs. And, and, and but, but it was sort of, it brings the good and the bad with it. Well, a lot of schools now want to believe that their sports program is the quote front porch. And, you know, the thing that they want to show to the rest of the world. And as you say, there's good and bad with that. 
But it's a little bit like if you've ever been to a Las Vegas casino and you have to go through the slot machines and the blackjack tables and the craps tables to get to your hotel room. So that's the front porch. And, you know, that's a little problematic in a way. Um, the the sports program is the, sa- is the same way. At Louisville, that's what they wanted to show to the world. And Tom George, who was the athletic director and really a genius in his own way, uh, not only rebuilt the basketball program that Denny Crum had at once turned into a nationally known program, and he hired Rick Pitino, and he got the city to build him a big NBA-style arena. But, you know, he got... Um, a football team at Louisville to be a national powerhouse, which you know no one ever imagined before. And he got all these people in Louisville to consider these teams, you know, like their pro teams. And money just poured in, and everybody was happy, and everybody was happy until they weren't happy because first the basketball team under Patino, you know, went through two scandals, and then the school itself went through a financial scandal where it turned out that a lot of this athletic money was just about like a slush fund, and it was being used to to pay administrators, you know, massive amounts of money. And so when the athletic program fell into trouble, uh, the school uh, whose front porch it was was really diminished as well. Right. I mean, you, you mentioned, and I – I've been to Louisville. I have relatives in Louisville, so I, I mean, I love the town. It's great, but in some ways, it, it was a lot like Las Vegas in terms of that the the sports program in Louisville. There's no pro teams there, so it actually became the team of like they they were playing. You said an NBA style arena, but they didn't have an NBA team. It's sort of that's what Vegas became in, in Las Vegas. Is that you had this fairly large sized city of seven eight hundred thousand people that had no pro teams, but it sort of adopted this school and these teams as its own, especially because. Uh, and, and with the excitement, filling the stadiums and uh, building nicer and better stadiums uh, every year almost. Well, that's exactly right. And one of the interesting things about Louisville is that the Tom George um, and others at Louisville really kept an NBA team out of there. Um, at one point, <laughs> David Stern and others felt that Louisville could have an NBA team. It's a pretty big city. It's got some money. Uh, it's you know an up-and-coming regional city. It's you know, not all that unlike um, Salt Lake City or Charlotte or um, I'm trying to think of some of the other NBA cities. You know, it wouldn't be one of the bigger ones, but it could have an NBA team. And certainly the arena with its, you know, luxury suites and, and you know, beautiful amenities could have an NBA team. But Louisville said, you know what, uh, our basketball team is the NBA team. And the city rallied around it as if it were. And I guess that brings back to the analysis. You spent a lot of time talking to Michael Sokolov, who wrote a tremendous book called The Last Temptation of Rick Pitino's out at Amazon and Barnes & Noble and those books, a tremendous book about the scandal itself with Louisville and also just in general everything that's going on in college sports and in college basketball particularly. But so Rick Pitino takes his team to three Final Fours, is the team's perennially one of the top teams uh, and then he gets, he has an affair with a staffer and it became salacious. We don't have to go into the details of that, but then he comes back after that and he wins the national championship 2012, 2013 with only one NBA player potential to ever play in the NBA on that team. Uh, and then he's toast of the town. Uh, but, but then the next scandal, the fact that they was found that they were having strippers at the dorms with 14 times they had parties. 
again, but most coaches, it's hard to say what other coach in America, and we've had, we have, you know, big name coaches. I don't know who else could have survived the two scandals that he had and, and still keep the power that he had. Well, I think that it's remarkable that he survived both of those scandals, especially what was called Strippergate, which was a series of parties over three or four years in the basketball dorm, steps from Rick Pitino's office, in which you know strippers and escorts came in and, and entertained and had sex parties for recruits and for some current players. And Rick Pitino said, oh my gosh, I knew nothing about that. And maybe he didn't, but when you're in charge of you know a, a business the size of what what Louisville basketball was, if it's a public company, whatever it is, you're held responsible usually for the things that happen under you. And this, the person who organized these parties was not some employee Patino never met. It was his former point guard, and and uh, somebody on his staff. So he survived that, and and it was a testament to how popular he was in Louisville, and what an amazing coach Rick Pitino really was. I mean, Rick Pitino is a gifted coach. So you know, one of the reasons I called the book "The Last Temptation of Rick Pitino" is the recruiting scandal a year ago, or more than a year ago at this point, uh, was really you know the the third temptation, and that's the one that he could not survive. And you mentioned in your book that. The skill of Rick Spatino is the comment is that he could beat you with his players, or if you want to give him your players, he'll beat you with your players too. That that he was, and when he and he had won with not the top names, as opposed to the schools that were getting the top five and top ten groups and the Zion Williamses of the world, he wasn't really getting those players. He was developing even Donovan Mitchell, who is the player at Louisville who now plays at uh, uh, Utah, who's a star, who wasn't coming in as a top recruit. But right. but then he it's surprising that the skill that brought him down was like Brian Bowen Jr., a top recruit that decided to go there. So talk a little about this whole Brian Bowen Jr. and how that what role he played into finally bringing down Rick Pitino. Well, first of all, you know you mentioned about Pitino not getting top recruits. I mean, he won a national championship and went to Final Fours without without any lottery picks. That's that doesn't happen. But but that's the skill he had. Brian Bowen Jr., whose nickname is Tugs, uh, was, you know, a nice player, a top 20 player probably, not the next LeBron James, but a really good player who everybody wanted. And uh, his recruiting went on and on and on and on, uh, and he did not declare until the June of his senior year, which should have been an alarm bell for Patino right there. Um, and... He declared for Louisville. Some, you know, nobody thought he was going to go to Louisville. Well, when the FBI broke the case against college basketball, it turned out that money had been paid to Brian Bowen Jr. Well, let me back up to Brian Bowen Jr.'s father. Uh, money had been paid to direct him to Louisville by Adidas. Um, it would appear that at least one Louisville assistant coach and perhaps two were, were involved in these transactions. Uh, and Patino once again said, well, I didn't know anything about it. Um, you know, the victim in this is Brian Bowen Jr. He lost his college career. The money went to his father. Uh, Tugs uh, seemed to know nothing about it. And it turned out his father was taking money uh, for his son's basketball playing, you know, going back to when he was in his mid-teens, taking money for him to play on AAU teams. 
you know, the really sad thing is this is not unusual. There are parents, there are uncles, there are shoe company representatives, there are assistant coaches. There's a whole system of people profiting off a young basketball talent, and often the kid not only doesn't get any money, as Brian Bowen didn't, but also doesn't even know anything about it. And and that's really, to me, the tragedy in this thing. So, I mean, go, going looking forward in terms of what the NCAA, and they, they just issued last week those uh, rules that said, just a vote that said, we're going to let people profit on likeness, but stay tuned for what we're going <laughs> we're gonna to do. What do you see? I mean, at what level? I mean, when you say profit on likeness, then why can't these high school kids sell shoe companies? I mean, is, that, is it going to go that level in terms of them actually having shoe deals? It's their likeness. Shoe companies want to be involved with them. What do you think is going to happen with the NCAA with these rules? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. I would be very skeptical of of what the NCAA has announced. It was in reaction to a law passed in California, um, and and that's on the sort of that's been proposed in various other states that that athletes, college athletes, must be able to benefit from from their likeness, from their fame. The NCAA said yes, we want to do that, but they gave absolutely no details. And they put a little, a lot of qualifications in into that into the statement they made. You know, it has to still look like college sports, and et cetera, et cetera. Look, in the NCAA's defense, and and I say that sort of advisedly because there, there's sometimes there's no defense for them. It is really complicated. It takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of goodwill. Are you going to have one or two kids on a college team who have? deals with a shoe company and, and a local car dealership and they're signing autographs and they're making a million dollars a year and everybody else is an amateur. You know, maybe, and maybe if they're um, good enough to get that, maybe that's the right way to go. But obviously it takes some thought. It could be problematic. But one way or the other, kids who are worth millions or hundreds of thousands, whatever it is, kids who are worth something need to be able to to get that money that's you know the time of of the paternalistic you got to wait i think that's i think that's just going to end well i mean it gets back to what my first question in terms of the shoe companies like adidas they sponsor these camps they're involved with these kids when they're younger but then adidas gave louisville a 10-year 160 million dollar contract so the school has they're so involved with the school so clearly what was happening is that this school the teams were like adidas is like well if i'm paying so much to louisville and i have people in my camp i want the best players to go to schools that we're giving money to so that's that's right. like the feeder system and i guess that's what what the issue is and then how are they going to control it going forward you know with those situations well, it's like a whole game, and it's it's money, you know, just just whipping around the table, and and there's there's one uh, set of people at the table, uh, the the players, the talent, uh, who are generating billions of dollars, and I mean billions, and and even more now that we have um, legalized gambling, uh, you know, oncoming, you know, this is the talent that generates the money, and and it bypasses them. And it can't bypass them anymore. And, you know, in some senses you could say it hasn't bypassed them because they've been cut in under the table. Um, but they haven't been cut in to the degree they should be. And, and there's risk for them because when one of these scandals breaks, it is usually the kids more than the adults, meaning the coaches and the athletic directors, 
It's the kids who pay, and that's been true going back more than a century to the earliest basketball scandals involving names like Connie Hawkins and, and others who were caught up in the point-shaving scandals, you know, going back to the 1950s and 60s. No, I really appreciate you bringing that up because, like, even with Reggie Bush, he had to get back his Heisman Trophy, and, 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 and all the benefits went to his family. I mean, it, it was not proved that Reggie got any benefits, really, and, and he had to give up as the only person out to give back a Heisman Trophy. And he's done well for himself now, but I feel I felt bad about that when it's that situation. But um, yes. we just talked to Michael Sokolov, uh, Last Temptations of Rick Pitino. It's uh, available from Penguin Press. It's in bookstores online and uh, uh, and you can read through e-books and everything. So it's a, but it's just, I, I think the book is great. And even if you're not like, oh, I'm not so interested in Pitino or Louisville, if you want to get an insight into college basketball and what college sports really is going to, I think it's a great read. And I would suggest everybody buy it. So, Michael, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks so much for reaching out to me. I appreciate it. Great interview here with Michael Sokolov here on Ira on Sports. It's 8.01. Ira, we're always running late, but let's try to get through just uh, one or two more of these really quick. Going back to NFL, Kansas City, I consider Minnesota a pretty good team. They do everything decent to good, and Kansas City, without their star quarterback, still manage another win. <laughs> well, everyone who wants to make Patrick Mahomes like the greatest savior of the, of the world. I mean, Matt Moore comes in, and we know Matt Moore from Miami, uh, and was able to hold on. Now they had a kicker. I mean, this comes down to Harrison Buckner for Kansas City had to kick to tie, and then and then he had a 54 yard one to tie, and then a 44 yard field goal to win the game. So again, these kickers, it's very important. To, and in terms of, of course, they're important. But even this past weekend, it seemed like the most important players were the kickers. But the Vikings, look, it was a tough game, but it was one that. They really, with the Packers losing, they could have taken a hold of this division, and they fell to 6-3, and three, and Kansas City winning keeps them in that hunt with the Ravens winning for getting that other, besides the, the Patriots, the other number one, the other the buy, the first, uh, first buy. So it was, it was a big game for Kansas City, and now Mahomes should be back at least in a week or two. Um, Ira, just last game before we move on from this, and the only reason I want to talk about it is because it relates to us here in South Florida. The Jets lost to the Miami Dolphins. This game, to me, I know some teams don't fire midseason. If ever there was a time to fire your coach midseason, I'd say today would be that with Adam Gase. Do you think Gase makes it even through this offseason and and is coaching this team next year? And something to look in hindsight, this may be a blessing in disguise for the Jets, just taking away, potentially taking away that number one overall pick from, from the Dolphins. Let's say the Bengals do get the number one overall pick now, draft the best quarterback, and he leads the Bengals for the next 15 years, and the Dolphins miss out on that. This could be a blessing in disguise. Well, you can see how Miami's – look, the, if you're a Cowboy fan, and say you miss the playoffs by a game – I mean, to lose to the, that, that game against the Jets – will haunt the Cowboys the entire season. And maybe in seasons, I mean, it could be the reason why Jason Garrett loses his job, because you can't lose a game to the Jets, and the Jets have just totally quit on their coach. Look, we've seen Adam Gaze down in, in Miami. He was terrible down here, and he's just he's, and it took him a while to get be terrible. But now he's clearly lost this locker room. And it just shows that we, we talked, I said it earlier in the show, this Matt Rule. Matt Rule, was, there was so much noise about him getting that Jets job. And I think they made a huge mistake in not having hiring him and I they might go back to him now, I don't know I think Matt Rule has his choice in a lot of places after the job he's done with Baylor but um, yeah I cannot see Gase lasting he'll 
I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if he got fired during the season, but he'll not last past this year. He's going to be one and out. Uh, and the Dolphins give them credit. I mean, they're they're trading all their players away. They traded Fitzpatrick. They played traded Kenyon Drake. Now Mark Walton, the the, 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 the fifth string running back, is now going to be suspended for four games. Uh, they lose Preston Williams. I mean, they are. I don't know what they're doing. I mean, this Brian Flores is, and they play hard against Pittsburgh, and they've lost some games. But I, I think that everyone is. I think this is making. Even though they have one win and they're bad. I think that he is getting a lot of fans and people like how the fact that he's getting his team to play hard. I agree. And he reminds me of Manny Diaz. And I think that the Dolphins are at least committed enough to where they knew this wasn't a one-year thing. And I think Flores' job is more than safe for now because he is getting the most. This is a JV team. This team could would probably lose to some college teams. And I know there's always the joke, oh, Alabama couldn't beat the Browns. I don't know. <laughs> there's a couple of teams. Alabama might be able to roll these guys. Um, I know you want to talk about it before we wrap this up. This was a huge weekend for fighting. And it was also something strange to me that I never thought I'd see between boxing and UFC. Let's talk about it. Well, Diaz versus Masvidal was UFC 244. Um, it was one of those fights. It wasn't a title fight, but it was at Massachusetts Garden, and they were banned from fighting UFC and Massachusetts Garden for years. It was the last state to allow it. So when it came, it's been a big deal. And even the President of the States went to the fight, and it was. And they weren't fighting for a title, but it, Diaz and Masvidal promoted this fight great. And Masvidal won in three rounds. Diaz was stopped on a cut. A lot of excitement, but I was watching that fight, but I was waiting for the Canelo Alvarez fight, who Canelo is the top draw in boxing. He literally had to wait an hour before that fight was over because they did not want to start the, the boxing match while the UFC fight was going on. And they actually, in, in Vegas, they were showing the UFC fight before the boxing. They were showing other boxing matches. They just thought it was like almost a two Really, it was almost a two-hour gap between the last boxing match and the, and, the, and the main event between Alvarez and Kovalev. So I think it was not a good look for boxing to have to see the, the stage. The fight didn't go on until 1 in the morning. Ira, um, real quick, NBA. Our Miami Heat are off to a sneaky good start, and it's led by these two rookies that really, I mean, Tyler Hero was a little bit uh, projected to, to do something, but this guy Nunn absolutely was not, and he's setting records. So this is an impressive start to the NBA season. Well, for the Heat, certainly, and we're going to spend more time talking about the NBA. I've been in fantasy leagues left and right. Uh, the things I'm going to say, Warriors, complete disaster. They're one in five. Curry's out. Uh, you know, Clay Thompson's probably not going to come back the whole year. Draymond Green gets hurt. They're playing with 19 and 21 year old players. I mean, this team, they, the Warriors potentially might have the worst record in the league. And wouldn't that be funny if they would have the worst record, then they draft a superstar player and add it to the roster. And exactly what happened to the Spurs when David Robinson got hurt one yeah. year, he was hurt and they drafted Tim Duncan. Uh, the Clippers and the, and the Lakers are off to good starts at five and one for the Lakers, five and two for the Clippers. And the game I want to mention, I saw Lakers Mavericks Friday night, LeBron and Luka Doncic. Uh, LeBron, anyone who says that he's uh, too far gone, he's still the best player in the NBA. 39 points, 16 assists, 12 rebounds. Doncic had 31, 15, and 13. Doncic's the youngest person to have a stat line like that. LeBron's the oldest. First time it's ever happened in in, in the same game. Doncic was tremendous. And it took Danny Green hitting a three at the end of regulation to send into overtime. But the two takeaways are for Singus and Doncic are playing great for the Mavericks. Uh, the Mavericks have the next superstar in Doncic, and LeBron and Davis are playing great for the Lakers. And it's, it's again, I, I just think the league, the season is so long, and you got to pick and choose what the good games are going to be. Uh, but for the Heat fan, I like the East. I think they could at least be the third seed. I I, I think that Milwaukee's the best team in the East. 
but I think I think they're better than Toronto. Uh, I think Boston would be two, the Heat three. I'm not. I don't. Philadelphia. When you look at MB taking time off and they don't have Jimmy Butler, I think they could be like the fourth seed. I don't see now. It doesn't mean the Philadelphia can't get to the NBA Finals for these, but I don't see them with MB playing 50, 60, 50, 55 games. I don't see this. I think the Heat could be have a better record than the, than the Sixers. I absolutely agree with you there. We are out of time. Ira, where are you headed this week? Uh, maybe Bama LSU. We'll see. The Penn State has that big game against Minnesota, but it's a. It was exciting this week to see the NFL games and uh, take a break from the NFL. But then uh, probably next Thursday I'll be at Cleveland Pittsburgh at Cleveland, so it's a good week. But maybe catch Alabama LSU this weekend. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Michael Sokolov, author of The Last Temptation of Rick Pitino. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Iron Sports.